sitting here on the couch on a Saturday night. Just establishing the setting here. Batman's been playing with his hedgehog. His hedgehog is both a toy and a friend. He has a couple toys that are friends. One of them is Charo the cheetah, which several generations of dogs in the family I got Batty from have had the have had Char the exact same Charo the cheetah, and he brings Charo into bed with him. Like if I go up and I go to bed, and I say, "Where's Charo?" Doesn't matter where Charo is in the house, he'll find Charo and bring Charo to bed, and he'll do it on his own. And he knows the name. Like if I say Charo. He knows exactly what toy I'm talking about. But he's got this hedgehog toy that I bought him. I think I bought it for him before he was mine. And it's a, it's this really well, like for a Walmart dog toy, it's really well made. Considering how much play and love it's gotten, it's held together really well. But it's this stuffed hedgehog with a camo belly. It's really cool. It's my favorite too. It's, it's his favorite toy. It's also my favorite toy. But it, what's weird about Hedgehog is Hedgehog is both a friend and a toy. Like, he loves to play with Hedgehog. He loves to play catch. He loves to play tug-of-war. He'll just carry Hedgehog around. I'll, I'll just look over, and he'll have Hedgehog in his mouth just running across the house, taking him. He takes Hedgehog places. He shows Hedgehog the whole house. But he'll also bring Hedgehog into bed. Like, not to play with, just kind of like Charo, where, like, Hedgehog's a friend and a toy. He'll do a little of both, whereas Charo's more of a friend than a toy. Just to, giving you a little background. But what I was thinking about was when you interact with somebody, something to consider, and, and this isn't something you should think about every time you talk to somebody. I don't do this. But it's something to think about in your downtime just to kind of help you wrap your brain around people. And that's, what is this person trying to tell me about them? What is this person trying to communicate about themselves, especially right away, especially immediately? And uh, it doesn't mean you can trust it, but even if it's deceptive or manipulative or a lie, you can tell a lot from that too. And asking yourself that question, you know, I think it can really help you understand people and not get trapped in their hell because some of that stuff is their own little hell and you can see it in obvious ways like the way someone dresses like I think back when I was in high school sophomore year of high school I loved getting new patches I'd get patches and sew them onto my sweatshirt my jacket I wore nothing but band shirts for a while. And it was stuff that I liked. You know, some of it I don't even like anymore, but it was stuff at the time that I liked. Even if I just, even if I just liked the idea of it, and I didn't really understand it at the time. You know, it, but then there was also a part of me that wanted people to know that. It wasn't just that I liked it. It's that I wanted people to know I liked it. I wanted it to represent me. Even though my brain never went there, there was a part of me that was like, I want people to know that I'm into this stuff. And because I'm into this stuff, it means something to me. It means something about me, rather. And people who, you know, adopt the newest fashion, you know, what they're trying to communicate to you is that I'm not out of date. I'm relevant. I'm not out of touch. I'm aware of, of what's new and what's going on. People who just dress completely normal, well, you don't really know. You can figure they're trying to communicate that they're normal, maybe. But a lot of weird people do that on purpose. I'm already in the weeds here. <laughs> I'm already in the weeds. Um, a lot of people will do that on purpose. In my experience, some of the weirdest people do that. Cool weird, like some of the coolest slash weirdest people, not just weirdos, but, but then one, but then some real scary freaks do that too. Serial killers do that. So even just appearing normal and trying to communicate to you through the way someone looks that they're normal doesn't always mean they're normal. 
But, it, you know, it kind of relates to what I said about the uniform of the far left these days, you know, with dyed hair, kind of a swoop haircut, certain kinds of glasses, tattoos in certain locations, you know, certain kind of clothes. That uniform communicates something. And whether they know that's what they're doing or not, that's what they're trying to do. When you see somebody who looks like that, it communicates to other people what they believe. Like I've said before, you pretty much know exactly what that person thinks about any given issue. You could bet on it. You could bet your savings on it. And they actually want you to know that. They want each other to know that. The people who they want to impress, they want them to know that about them, which is why they look that way. And someone's demeanor is a little different. Like if you meet someone and they have a certain demeanor, obviously someone's demeanor is a way of telling you what they want you to know about them. But if somebody's really shy or anxious, they don't necessarily want you to know that. If someone's awkward, they might want the opposite. They might wish that they were communicating something else. Although the last 20 years, I mean, the number of people who cultivate like a fake, awkward, fake, fake, anxious, pseudo introverted personality, that's become a whole new thing. Of course it would be. People idolize, those characters have been put on a pedestal, musicians who are that way. The idea of like the deep introvert, obviously being mysterious is attractive. So there's people who kind of cultivate a shy or awkward persona, even if it's not them. But there's a lot of people who like, they communicate anxiety and fear and uncertainty and a lack of confidence. And they're not, they don't want you to know that. It just comes out. So it's not that everything that people do is telegraphed. But a lot of it is. And then what they tell you, what they say, that's a, a big part of it. The sorts of things that they just bring up casually. Those are things they want you to know about them. And that plays into the virtue signaling of recent years. What that is, is they want you to know this about them, which is why it's often directed not to people who might disagree, but to people who likely do agree. The reason why virtue signaling is so popular in the places where people do it the most, social media, is because it's already being, they've already kind of cultivated a peer group. And signaling in that way will gain the approval of that group. So it's not that they're making a bold statement. And I've done it before. I've done it before. Of course I have. I'm a human being. I'm a fallen human being. Do you not think that I've virtue signaled one way or another over the years? I've probably done it a ton of times. I'm sure that I've done it countless times. Long before, I mean, it's not a new thing. People have been doing that forever. I'm sure that I've done it my entire life. I'm sure I still do it. I, I promise you. I, I can promise you. I probably virtue signaled at some point without even realizing it in the last week because it, it doesn't lean one way or another. And I prefer just to call it signaling at this point. I mean, virtue signaling has become such a buzzword. The right has really taken it and used it the most. And they accuse the left of virtue signaling. And I'm not trying to play both sides here. But you see it everywhere. Of course, the right wing is just filled with virtue signaling. It's been interesting to watch the new Christians, and I think that's fading a little bit. I think the the new Christian counterculture is, is fading. I've, I've been noticing probably in the last six months, it's been fading a lot. But before that, when it was at its peak, and I was very interested in it, because I saw it in many different places. And it kind of developed like short, you know, I think I started to notice it even around the time that I read the Bible. I think there was some, there was a zeitgeist 
And I think some, you know, I, I didn't become a Christian, but I, I think I took a deeper interest in it as well and just understanding it. And, you know, at this point, I mean, I, I pretty much practice Buddhism. I wouldn't call myself a Buddhist, but that's pretty much what I practice. But I did take a, an interest in Christianity, and I'm still interested in it. You know, I read the Bible every night. But I noticed with like this, it was this kind of new Christian counterculture. So there was this zeitgeist, and I wasn't exempt from that. I'm not exempt from that. But I noticed with the people who took it on in full, like the people who became Christians in the last five or six years, which were like kind of younger men, you know, older millennial to maybe younger millennial. I think it was kind of a millennial trend. I think that some of them took it on because it is the antithesis of a lot of what pop culture represents now. It was a way of rebelling. And I would never pretend that I know who had a spiritual connection or a spiritual epiphany, who actually really connected to that. I would never be able to tell that about somebody else because somebody could look at me and what I'm interested in and assume that it's me signaling or, or that I have some other motivation when only I know what my faith consists of. Only I know what my feeling of connectivity is. And so I would never assume that about somebody else. But I did notice with, with some of this new Christianity counterculture, a lot of virtue signaling with that. A lot of really hardline opinions that basically mirrored the neocon evangelical talking points from 20 years ago. And many of the people who embraced this were people who hated that at the time. What's interesting about that movement and i would call it a movement i don't know that it's like very it's kind of amorphous but i would call it a movement of some kind i think all movements now are amorphous i think they're all kind of shapeless and they just fit in all kinds of weird spaces and take the overall shape is very weird and shifting i think that's just the nature of the world we're living in now the digital world plays such a big role but uh a lot of these guys, from what I've observed, were um, even atheists. They were people who were very, maybe even anti-religious, like the sort of people who would have mocked religion and mocked Christianity 20 years ago, embraced it in the last six, five, six, seven years, probably the last five or six years. I, I keep forgetting that, what, six years ago is 2016? Yeah, so last last six years or so, I think is it, it's been developing it kind of and it kind of developed alongside wokeness for lack of a better word it kind of as as that kind of became a new folk religion for a certain sort of person there was a certain sort of reactionary young man who was probably liberal up to a certain point who embraced this kind of reactionary new christianity counterculture but what's interesting is seeing how many of those people started signaling it, started wearing crosses, started really condemning and judging people according to whatever cherry-picked Christian guidelines they want, you know, because plenty. There's a lot of room for interpretation. There's a lot of room to choose which things you want to get on somebody about. And I would call that virtue signaling. I would call that a form of virtue signaling. And that happens a lot when, somebody, when something is new to somebody. Virtue signaling tends to happen more often when somebody is relatively new to a certain way of thinking, a certain interest, a certain thing that they are passionate about or they want other people to think they're passionate about. Because virtue signaling is what tells people, oh, hey, I'm one of you, too. I'm with you, too. I think that, too. Because somebody who's lived a certain way, who's lived it, as they say, they have less need to signal it. 
it's probably ingrained into many aspects of their life. It probably informs their relationships. It's something that the people they have relationships with may already know about them. It's kind of time-honored. So virtue signaling often comes when somebody is relatively new to an idea, and that's true for politics. People who virtue signal about whatever the current leftist cause is, it's probably relatively new to them. It's like all of the people who were saying defund the police in summer 2020. That was new to almost all those people. While I've known some people who have been saying that for years, the people who were broadcasting that, a lot of them were new to it, but they wanted people to know that they were on board. But it's something we inevitably do as fallen people. We inevitably do a certain amount of that. There's many things I would love to never do again. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that no matter how much control I have over myself, no matter how aware I am of them, there's certain things I just wish I could never do again, And but I know I will. But knowing that I will, I feel like gives me a little more power over it too. Because it won't catch me by surprise. But it's something to consider when you talk to somebody. When on kind of a virtue signaling. But I mean, I think virtue signaling needs to be talked about a little more intelligently than it is. Because the way right-wing reactionaries do it, it's like, oh, look, they're virtue signaling. Oh, look, it's a, it's a liberal virtue signaling. And... That, that kind of commentary is missing that it's something universal to, to what human beings do. It, it's a core part of who we are socially. And it's especially relevant when somebody is new to an idea or new to a lifestyle. Because if something works for you, you don't need to broadcast it to other people because they'll be able to see it in you. And you don't need to reinforce it in yourself. It's like I make fun of Fitbits. I make fun of people who have like a machine, like a, like a digital watch that counts their steps. I don't make fun of them personally because if that's what you need, if that's what works for you, that's great. And if it works for you, nothing I can say, nothing I say can change that. If you've lost weight that you wanted to lose because you have a Fitbit, or you've gotten in shape because of a Fitbit and you know you've gotten in shape and you know the Fitbit has helped you. Me saying, oh, have you, have you counted your steps today? It's just me being an, an idiot and antagonist because you know it works for you. But if me saying, oh, you, oh, so you, you have to count your steps today? You know, you count your steps? If I say that and you think, oh, Fitbits are lame. Maybe Fitbits are stupid. Maybe I shouldn't use it. Well, it's probably not built into your life. And there's probably more going on than just you trying to get in shape. You're probably doing a lot of things because of what other people think, if that's how you react to somebody making a joke or a criticism. Because if it works for you and has been working for you, well, you know that already. And, uh, I don't know, just talking about, uh, how much of this is when someone's new to something. Like if you're new to a niche style of music, you're more likely to want to adorn yourself in a way that represents that. I mean, that's how I used to think when I was a teenager, like when I got in, like back in those days, it was like, you didn't have access to everything all at once. So it's like. When I look back, everything moved very quickly, like going from being into this genre to this genre to this genre, it all moved very quickly. But it's like if I got into a new genre of music that I loved, like when I got into death metal, I wanted death metal t-shirts. One, because I love death metal, and I still do. I still love death metal. But part of it, somewhere in there was like, I'm new to this, and I want people to know that this is a part of me now. I didn't think that. It's just that was kind of part of what I was doing if I bought a death metal t-shirt. 
And you see this a lot with taste. I mean, I think about how many people are blasting music all the time out of their cars. And they want you to hear it. There's a lot of people who they play music, not because they just enjoy blasting music and rocking out. They want you to hear what they're listening to. They want you to know that about them. They want you to know that they have a booming, I mean, it's the reason people get subwoofers. They want you to know that they listen to hip hop and you like a, and, and you have a war drum subwoofer that lets everybody know. You want, you want everybody to know. You want everybody to know that you're cool. But, uh, the other side of that is when people don't know, because people are wondering that about you. They might, they're not thinking that explicitly. When someone meets you or interacts with you, what I'm saying here probably doesn't cross their mind. They probably don't think, what is this person trying to tell me about them? But that's still going on. They're still processing that. When they meet you, there's a processor inside of them that is taking everything in and they're thinking, what is this person trying to tell me about them? And the reason is because a lot of people are doing that. A lot of people are trying to tell you something about them. So, of course, we want to know what it is they're trying to tell us. And uh, if they're asking themselves that question, if their internal processor is even just subliminally asking, what is this person trying to tell me about them? And the results come back and it says, I don't know. Or nothing. That's worse to them than it telling them, oh, this person's trying to tell me there's someone I shouldn't like. It might disturb them more deeply if the results say, I don't know, or nothing. Like if a guy in a mega hat meets one of these green-haired, swoop, glasses-wearing they-thems, they can both immediately recognize what each person represents. They know the exact game that's being played. When the they-them meets the mega guy, they know exactly what they need to know about them from that. As far as their value system goes, they know exactly what they need to know. And the mega person knows exactly what the green-haired person, uh, they, they know exactly what they need to know about that person. And even though that leads to like hate and antagonism, it checks off the boxes they need to know not to like that person and to denounce that person. In my experience, people find that preferable. People would prefer to know whether or not to like you or not like you than they do not knowing. They don't like to be confused. They don't like ambiguity. They don't like any kind of gray area. And not just gray area, but it's like they don't like to see something gray that uh, might be a little darker or a little lighter than uh, what you initially see. And so they would rather see you in black and white terms because they know what they think they need to know about you. I know this is kind of a, a winding... I don't know, there's just a, there's a lot of words here. But uh, when people are confronted with that, in my experience again, when people are confronted with not knowing what you are or what you're trying to tell them, they will often try to get you to reveal that. They'll often find ways to provoke you to say something or do something. It's one of the reasons why this political small talk that's developed is so disturbing to me because a lot of it is kind of a prompt to get you to reveal your hand. 
And I, I noticed this especially in the Trumpsfeld era where people would just make offhand remarks about him. If you're like me, you never said anything one way or another. You never said anything one way or another. You never even tapped into that with any with most of the people you know, with coworkers, with acquaintances. But you'll notice what they would do. It'd be like, oh, could you believe what he said last night? Oh, did you listen to what Trumpsfeld said? And when they bring that up, it's not that they actually care to talk to you about it. It's that you haven't given them the signal. You haven't told them what they think they need to know about that, about you. And so they're trying to get you to say something. And it bothers them when they don't have an answer. It bothers them when their processor tries to figure out what is this person trying to tell me and the results are inconclusive. And so they try to force results. And with me, it doesn't go anywhere most of the time. Because, you know, it's very easy to tell when someone's trying to do that. I mean, people do it about with gossip. Like, if somebody's trying to figure out what you think about somebody else, like a coworker, they might bring that person up in kind of a a mixed way. They might not just start talking shit about them. They're going to just kind of hint about it and wait for you to be like, oh, yeah, you know, well, that person, eh, you know, the, I just I don't talk to him much. Like someone might say, oh, you know, I noticed that Jerry didn't, uh, I don't know, I can't come up with an example. But someone will bring that person up in a more mixed way. They won't just immediately start tearing them apart. And they're waiting for you to kind of give the signal. But they do it about you too, what they want to know about you. And personally, I prefer to live that way. Not in some manipulative way or not like I'm hiding something. I just prefer to live that way. Everything you need to know about me comes from the way I conduct myself. Everything you need to know about me, unless you are close to me, unless we do establish trust, everything you need to know about me is right there. And you can decide for yourself whether or not I'm trustworthy, dangerous, nice. If I'm nice to you and I do what's expected of me, you don't actually need anything more than that. What could you possibly want from somebody? Because even if they tell you what you want to hear or reveal the information that you want to hear, can you trust that? There's a lot of people who lie about what they actually think. There's a lot of people who lie about who they actually are. Especially when they feel like there's going to be a problem because of it. But, uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, even with Buddhism, especially with Buddhism, it's funny how much of that is this aesthetic. Like we have this idea that Buddhists have certain beliefs, certain politics, that they look a certain way. Living in this area, there's a lot of kind of Western Buddhists, people who just kind of practice pop Buddhism, which, you know, if that works for you, it works for you. It's still pop Buddhism. But you can kind of tell they're in that way way of, you can, tell, you can kind of tell they're in those circles just by looking at them. I mean, wearing beads, obviously monks, obviously monks, you look at a monk and you you know right away. No, but just even just normal people, laymen, you can tell if they're Buddhist and trying to let people know they're Buddhist. You can tell if it's part of their aesthetic. And what's interesting to me is, is there's really nothing in the, the texts that I read or any of the studying I've done of Buddhism that would necessitate that. And if anything, it's the opposite. Yeah, there are guidelines and rules and 
There's ways that monks are supposed to dress, but to me, that's just kind of indicative of our fallen nature, too. While there's value to a structured form of Buddhism like that, when, when people are hinged on that structure, I think that kind of goes away from some. I mean, Buddhism is very much about discipline, but I think there's a, there's a difference between like discipline and practice and um, like this formal structure and aesthetics. But people, because there is a way to broadcast that you're a Buddhist or you're interested in Buddhism, it's led people to believe that that falls within certain parameters. Like if someone were to say, and, and that kind of applies to politics, I mean, it, it really does apply to politics, where if you hear that someone is Buddhist, there's probably a 90% chance they're politically liberal. And if somebody were to say, like, I'm a, I'm a Donald Trumpsfeld voting Buddhist, who I'm sure exist. I mean, my future Buddhist Republican girlfriend is going to be that. So, and she's alive right now, but I don't know if she's Buddhist or Republican yet. Um, we're not going to get together. We're not going to... I can't remember if she's going to be my wife or my girlfriend, but she's going to be 25 when I'm 45. So she's like a teenager right now, so I shouldn't really even think about that. And I don't know if she's discovered republicanism and buddhism yet i'm not sure where in the timeline i'm not going to find that out until later when we have our dates our first date but if you were to hear that somebody is is a buddhist and a republican you'd be like what no way it's not possible but i would say is being an obama supporter is being a biden supporter is being a hillary supporter is that more compatible with buddhism than Trumpsfeld or George W. Bush or whoever else? I don't know that you can sincerely answer that. I, I don't know that you can deny, I, I don't know that you can um, say a, a being a Buddhist Republican is any more inconsistent with Buddhism than being a Buddhist Democrat even though most Buddhists are Democrats. I don't know that you can actually say that. That's just kind of where things have fallen. That's kind of where, that's kind of the direction. That's where the ruts in the road kind of developed. But reading Buddhist texts, there's a lot of material in there that could be interpreted cons you know, conservatively. I mean, some of the traditional attitudes toward women, not, not cruel ideas, but just in terms of the role of a woman. Buddhism as more of a fraternal path. Not that it uh, not that it's misogynistic, but just that there's a lot more emphasis on tradition and roles and doing things the way they were always done, which is a very conservative minded trait. But uh, when someone outwardly tries to communicate that they're Buddhist, it's sort of this post-hippie, post-1960s cultural revolution idea that, like, I'm a liberal. I have liberal values. And there's a lot in Buddhism, not just with monks, but there's a lot in Buddhism about sexual restraint. Not necessarily celibacy, but one of the Buddhist precepts deals with sexually immoral behavior. And a lot of the people who are into pop Buddhism are very much into free love. They're very much into unrestrained sexuality. And the different branches or interpretations of Buddhism might lean different ways. You could go different directions with it. But there's definitely an emphasis in Buddhism on sexual restraint and certainly not overindulgence or impulsivity. So it's interesting that like so many Buddhists go the opposite direction.
they kind of take this free love approach. And they probably believe that's more consistent with Buddhist belief. That's how they've interpreted it. It's not my job to change their mind, and I wouldn't want to. I don't even know that that's my opinion. <laughs> I'm not trying to tell them anything about that. If they were to meet me, nothing I would communicate would try to tell them that. And that's another question, really. Like, what is this person trying to not tell me about themselves, but what are they trying to tell me, period? What are they trying to convince me of? There's a lot of that. A lot of you meet somebody or you know somebody already, and you realize a lot of what they're doing is trying to convince you of something that they think is right. And that goes along with one of the biggest signalers of all that I always talk about on here something that people are trying to tell you about themselves all the time is either I'm smart or I'm smart by proxy because I listen to the experts. I listen to smart people. What they're afraid of is not seeming dumb. In my experience, people will willingly act dumber than they are. There's this tendency to see being dumb as, as almost a virtue, just like being smart is a virtue. So people will lean into one or the other. They'll lean into seeming smart. They'll lean into seeming dumb. What they're terrified of being is of completely average intelligence. I don't know if it's always been this way. I would guess it hasn't. I think being in the information age has very much informed this. It's intensified it. But I truly believe that what people are most afraid of, many people are most afraid of, is other people realizing they're of completely average intelligence, which there's nothing wrong with. It's great. Being of average intelligence, it's great. How could you complain about that? It's like complaining about being middle class, which it turns out people complain about and hide too. People try to act poorer than they are, or they try to act richer than they are. People are terrified in this day and age of being recognized just good old middle class. I can't tell you how many middle class people, I mean, that's all I've known. I've never known anybody, I'm sure I have, but it's like, I've never known anybody who I would say is truly, truly poor. I'm sure I've known them, but it's like the people in my life the people I grew up around. Few, if anybody, was truly, truly below the poverty line, deeply below the poverty line, with little hope of getting above it. But I knew a lot of people who were comfortably middle class, kids in particular, who wanted you to think that they struggled more than they did, that they're poorer than they are. But I also knew people who want you to think they're richer than you are. You know, the middle class, they're chameleons. They want you to think they're, they're poorer than they are or richer than they are. Well, it's, it's true for people of average intelligence as well. They're, chame they're chameleons. People of average intelligence are chameleons because they're smart enough to, to pretend that they're smart. And they're smart enough to pretend that they're dumb. They're dumb enough to pretend that they're dumb too. And they're dumb enough to pretend that they're smart. Here we are in a... <laughs> A ridiculous word game, but it's one of the things I find interesting about average intelligence is they're often terrified of that fact. And so what a lot of them do is they try to signal to you that they're smart or they're dumb. They might not even know they're doing it, but they do it. Because there's something about being average, there's something about being in the middle that people don't like. And I think it's similar to what I said about someone's internal processor trying to read you and the results coming back inconclusive, gray. They would almost rather know that you are this or that. And there's something in people 
that wants people to know that about them too. They want people to know they're on one side or the other. They want someone to think they're smart or they're dumb. They want people to know they're on this side or that side. It's not just that other people experience kind of a confusion and a, um, a just kind of like indigestion when they don't know how to categorize somebody else. It's that you experience that sort of spiritual indigestion, psychological indigestion, when you yourself are communicating that. Because there's such an appeal, there's such a, a drive in us to identify as something and to signal that. So when we aren't identifying as something and we aren't signaling that in some way, we experience indigestion just like that other person experiences when they don't get that from us, when they can't read us, when they can't process us. But, uh, you know, with the signaling that you're smart, that's obviously intelligence is seen as a virtue. Meanwhile, it's immeasurable. Yeah, we can measure IQ. You can grade people in school. You can tell if somebody has certain strengths. Like you can, you can measure if somebody's good at math. You can measure if somebody's good at language. But we're constantly debating what intelligence is. We're constantly debating like what's book smart, what's street smart. There's more to it than just these ways that we can measure it, which is kind of what makes it so wonderful. <laughs> what makes intelligence so wonderful is that even though we have these ways of measuring certain types of intelligence, those don't encompass it. And we have a very difficult time it's very subjective, like what we consider smart. And you see it in today's world, I talk about this a lot. If somebody doesn't agree with you on something, even if it's something that's open for interpretation, there's a tendency to call them dumb. If somebody has a different political opinion than you, oh my God, you're so, you're stupid. Oh my God, you got nothing in your brain. You got nothing in your brain. Even though what's being debated really has nothing to do with intelligence, it's a subjective argument. But you resort to that. You resort to calling that person stupid. But it's not just that you want to pin that person down as an idiot. It's that in calling them stupid, you're elevating yourself. If they're stupid because they're wrong, I'm smart because I'm right. And some people make being smart part of their identity. I'm going to let people know that, hey, I like science. Some people are genuinely interested in science. There's other people who want to let you know they're interested in science because we equate science with intelligence. There's people who want to let you know they read a lot because we equate reading with intelligence. There's an idea in Buddhism that you shouldn't get lost in scripture. That enlightenment isn't found in reading text. It's more of a sensation. And I don't think in terms of enlightenment or non-enlightenment, but obviously it's a term that comes up a lot. But there, that's emphasized often not to get lost in text because sometimes people rely on that. I have a friend who's very into scripture and text of different kinds, and I really enjoy the conversations. But I do notice that I'm less interested in that. It, do, it seems to do less for me. Not that it does nothing, but it just it seems to just kind of seems to be there. And we have a tendency to do that because, I mean, you think about learning from books of any kind, not just spiritual scripture, but reading an educational book, reading a book about biology. That's a form of scripture to that person. This is going to teach you what you need to know. 
And that's what scripture should be. That's what it is, really. This is going to teach me what I need to know. And you might need to know that stuff. You might need to read that stuff. But you shouldn't forget that that's not the thing. It pales in comparison to something like faith or meditation or um, a genuine experiential epiphany. A genuine experiential epiphany. And I say that from my own experience. But I think that's also something you'll hear from others as well. I've certainly heard it from other people too. But I would, I would attest that it's true. And I think that's true for all forms of knowledge. I think that's true for every, every form of knowledge that we consume. There's a lot of value to scripture. There's a lot of value to books. There's a lot of value to reading. But that's not the actual thing itself. That's not the actual Gnostic experience. But sometimes people, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, it's common for people to read a book in public so that people see they're reading that book and that tells them something about that person. There's people who go to bars and they sit at the bar reading a certain book and they make sure that people can see the cover because they want somebody to talk to them about it or they want somebody to notice it. That's what I've said about sapia sexuals. Sapia, oh, you're a sapiosexual? You're, you're only attracted to smart people? That must mean you're smart. When someone says they're a sapiosexual, they're not trying to tell you, I'm dumb or I'm of completely average intelligence. I'm just attracted to smart people. I'm so dumb that I, I'm really attracted to smart people because it's so different and I, and I need smart people in my life. It's hot. They're actually trying to tell you they're smart too. I'm attracted to smart people because I'm smart. Every time I've heard somebody say they're sapiosexual, that's how I interpret it. And I believe that's what they're trying to communicate, that they're smart too. I'm a smart person looking for another smart person. Well, there's genuinely smart people who want somebody dumb in their life. There's genuinely smart people who don't want to date somebody who's smart, you know? That can be a nightmare. Baddie's going to the bathroom here. But, uh... He waits by the door to let me know that he has to go to the bathroom. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe it's too cold. Came right back in. I don't know what he was trying to say. But yeah, the sapiosexuality thing, I just always roll my eyes at that. Because I, I don't know if there's anybody who... I don't know that that's true for any one person. Of course we like smart people. I like smart people. But forming it into a sexual identity. And it's, it's a very feminine idea. Only women call themselves sapiosexuals. I've never known of a man. I'm sure there are men out there who say that they're feminized men. I don't say that even as an insult. That's simply what they are. But ambiguity in all this. Ambiguity tortures people. The median tortures people. It shouldn't. It's beautiful. You know, the median is a beautiful thing. Just that it exists. And politically, it tortures people. 
and they in turn torture the median. You'll never see Democrats and Republicans more unified than when they're bashing independents, libertarians, anybody who they think is in the middle or off to the side a little bit. You will see Democrats and Republicans whistling the same tune really quickly if they smell ambiguity or they feel that somebody is somewhere in between, hasn't committed. And in an age like we live in now where social politics have become part of this impolite conversation that people have with each other casually all the time. You know, political ambiguity is probably one of the... Political ambiguity is probably one of the things that bothers people more than anything. I think it bothers people more than anything right now. Unless you're politically ambiguous, then you love it. Then you love, I love politically ambiguous people. Ambiguous, can't even say it. I love politically ambiguous people. I'm overthinking the pronunciation. Not because they're politically ambiguous, but I appreciate that quality. It actually, it takes discipline and restraint. Even if they don't believe anything, which I really respect that. <laughs> I really respect someone who doesn't have any political beliefs. And uh, people hate that. People hate somebody who does not have political beliefs. They think that person doesn't care. Because to them, caring is supporting certain social, socio-political causes. And the idea that that person, it's like how people react to somebody who doesn't vote. You're letting the bad guy win. Because the idea is that if you don't agree with me, if you're not doing what I'm doing, it is enabling the other side. But what does the other side think? If you're not doing what I'm doing and you don't agree with me, you're enabling the other side. So they both think that the person who doesn't vote is helping the other side. Doesn't it cancel out? Doesn't that cancel out? If both people feel that the person who isn't doing what either side is doing is helping the other person, well, who are they helping? If Democrats think that not voting helps Republicans and Republicans think that not voting helps Democrats, who is it helping? Because when someone says, well, you should vote, we really need you to vote. It's based on the assumption that you're going to vote the way they are. Because if, if somebody says, you know, we really got to get Trumpsfeld back in office, back in orifice, you got to vote. And you say, oh, well, I'm going to vote for Jabama bin Biden. They're going to go, oh, wait, 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 wait. Maybe you shouldn't vote. They're going to be really happy that you're not voting at that point. When a Democrat tells you to vote, they're not telling you, vote just because that's your duty as a citizen. That's your obligation as a citizen. That's your privilege. They're saying, vote in a way that will help me and my cause. Because if you tell them you're voting for Trumpsfeld, once again, they're going to be your biggest fan if you then tell them you're not voting. Probably not your biggest fan, but... They're going to prefer that. Funny how that works. Funny how it's not about voting or not voting. It's actually about voting for who they want you to vote for. Which goes right back to the beginning of this. You know, what is somebody trying to tell you? What is somebody trying to convince you of? What is somebody trying to make you do? Well, when they tell you to vote, they're not just telling you to vote. They're trying to tell you to vote in a certain way.
Because if somebody just wanted you to vote, they probably wouldn't even bring it up. It probably wouldn't even come up in conversation. In my experience, very few of the people who are voting advocates like the idea of everybody voting for whoever they want, even if you disagree with them on politics. Very few voting rights activists actually want everybody to vote. Just a truth. And if you were to tell Democrats or Republicans, hey, we can prevent a certain number of Democrats from voting. We can discourage them from voting. They'd probably be happy with that. Doesn't matter how big of a voting advocate they are, they'd probably be happy to hear that their rival, their adversary is not going to be voting. Few people are such, you know, civic enthusiasts or whatever you want to call them, that they just like the idea of everyone voting. It usually has an ulterior motive if somebody brings that up. And it's why people put the stickers on themselves. People wear the stickers that say, I voted. In part to let their peer group know that they voted for the same guy as them. I voted doesn't just mean I voted. It means I voted in a way that will get the approval of my peers. And if you ever see me with an I vote, I, I have voted. Not every time, but I've voted a couple times, a few times. I'm not going to tell you how many times I've voted. But if you ever see me with an I voted... It's almost like a zombie thing. I, you know, nobody talks about zombies anymore. Everybody wouldn't shut up about that shit for years. Now you don't hear about it as much. But it's kind of like somebody saying, like, if I turn into a zombie, just kill me. It's like if I, if you ever see me with an I voted sticker, I have been compromised. I have been taken over. Something has happened to me spiritually. I need you to hang me, shoot me, cut me strangle me. I need you to put me out of my misery at that point. I need you to kill me if you ever see me with an I voted sticker on my body. If you consider yourself a friend, even if you don't, if you consider yourself my enemy you, and you've secretly hated me, that is your opportunity to kill me with my consent. You see an I voted sticker. And, and it's also a sign to get me some help. If you have a big heart, if you see an I voted sticker on me, it means I'm trying to get somebody to kill me. It means I'm trying to commit suicide by cop, basically. There's a potential that I'm trying to harm myself if I have an I voted sticker on me. But yeah, I mean, you shouldn't go through your life thinking this all the time, thinking this explicitly, but it's something subliminally that you should consider. What kind of information is this person trying to give me? And why would they want me to know that? And what kind of information are they trying to get out of me? And why do they want that? That'll actually, it sounds complicated to go through life thinking that way. It'll actually simplify your life. Your life will actually be more simple. You'll know who your friends are. You'll know who you can trust. If you keep that in mind, somewhere in the back of your head, what kind of information is this person trying to get out of me? And why do they want that? And what kind of information is this person trying to give me? And why do they want to do that? And those two things relate to each other. Because the, the information that someone's trying to give you 
is sometimes an, an attempt to get information out of you. Just keep that in the back of your mind somewhere. It will actually simplify your life, not make it more complicated. Children can